significance of this is not Peter Davidson and his family. Please, I, I mean this with all that I have. Don't take that away from here. I want you to take, feel the Holy Spirit wants you to take two issues away. As I was praying, I felt the Holy Spirit give me two issues that He wants you and me and us and Gene and the family to recognize and to take away from this. So don't take away primarily about us. Because you see, this is primarily about and for God. We must see it like that. So on that basis, I think I've been released to do this. The first issue is this, and I know that some of you are taking notes. The sheer goodness and kindness of God. Not because we prayed a particular way. Not because we needed something. Not because of anything that was discernible or obvious or knowable in us. But just because God is good. This is a clear statement of the sheer, and as I said this morning in the class, the shocking goodness of God. That's what this is. New Orleans throat. The second thing is, it's a revelation of the joy of God. To give his people joy. The Bible says the Lord delights in his own. He delights to bless us. And the delight there is that as we experience his blessings, he is overcome with joy. Not overcome, he experiences joy. I want you to see these two things. As some of you know, I've shared a little bit about my background Born in England, came over with my mom and them. You can tell the English accent here. In 1946, on the Queen Mary, came down to New Orleans on the train. Lived in New Orleans, was raised there. In a pretty difficult situation. Without all the details, when I was nine years old, my mother shared with me one evening, that evening, that my natural father had, was a Canadian and that he had died in the war. That the father that I knew was really my adoptive father or stepfather, if you would. So... I'll be 64 in about a week. You know, for all these years, I have been living with the knowledge, of course, that, okay, the father that I understood to be father is my adopted father, okay, and that my natural father is, was a Canadian, and he's been dead for all these years, and that closes the book. And, of course, that being the situation, you don't look for someone who has died. But a couple of years ago, Gene began to get an itch. Remember? You see, she says, this itch should have been your itch. That's what that look meant. How many of you men know that look? <laughs> and so, 
we need to start looking for this family called Beach. And so she started looking. I mean, I don't know all that, but she is surfing. She knows how to surf. She doesn't look like a surfer, but this girl can surf the Internet. So she surfed through the Internet. And we found, as best we could, what we understood to be perhaps the family member that we thought had died years ago. But we weren't sure and it wasn't clear. So we just stopped the search. So coming back from our trip a couple of weeks ago on Monday the conversation came up again I don't remember whether I precipitated it or you did but that's not important she looks at me and saying I did that means I did did I Hmm. and so you see why I have her here this helps me to keep online perhaps we need to one more time do a search not to find my father to perhaps if we can find a relative of his and perhaps some pictures or some memorabilia, you know, something. So Thursday morning, Jean came home about nine, ten o'clock in the morning. I was at my mother-in-law's house doing some work. And I get a call on my cell phone and Jean's crying. She says, I'm crying, but it's good news. Says, you know, what's to cry about if it's good news? And she said, they found your father. I said, what do you mean they found my father? See, my natural father had died. My father that I knew in America had also died a number of years ago. So what does this mean? You understand? Uh, When Jean had arrived at home that morning, Thursday morning, there was a recording on the phone that said something to the effect, if this is the household of Peter Douglas Davidson born in London, England during World War II, we would like you to call us. We have news for you that your father, Horace Beach, is alive and living in Canada. So Jean called them. You did talk to them before you called me, right? And to her astonishment, found this out. So she called me. So, over the next few days, we called the family, got the details worked out, and Jean and I and Ashley, it would be her grandfather, flew on up to, what's the name of the town? Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. I barely knew where Saskatchewan was, let alone Saskatoon. And we got to meet... The man who has been alive all these years, dead to us, but alive. And we're able to be reunited with him. You see, God is the God of resurrection. So, what I'd like to do this morning is, and when we got there, we arrived at the house, the cameras were there. My aunt up there is a very directed lady, and she called the news media, and they were there. And they put us on the national Canadian news, not the local, the national news, like NBC. And so, I wasn't going to show you the film, there's nothing wrong with it, but mm, I just felt that you would perhaps like to share in the goodness of God. So, 
So this film is about the goodness of God. So if you would, let's watch it. It's only about four minutes. Oh, children to Children's Church, you are dismissed. I thought I saw some very concerned looks on parents' face, like faces like, are we keeping them here this morning? <laughs> like, don't do that to us. What have we done to you to deserve that? Uh, it's, it's, to me, it would be a joy to have them in here. With the noise, without the noise, it's fine for me. Well, this morning, we're continuing in what we believe will be a rather lengthy series. I think Keith said last week it may take two years. Now, that's not two years of consecutive Sundays but even, or weekends, but even if it was to be two years, it would be okay. But probably peppered into that two-year period will be other issues that the Holy Spirit may use to speak to us as he would interrupt the series. So this morning, after the introduction of last week, we continue this morning with chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. So if you'll be turning to chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. As we begin, I want to... emphasize one issue. You remember the last series we had concerned the, the primacy and the centrality and the necessity of being aware of our need and the activity of the Holy Spirit. I suppose one of the greatest concerns I have Anyone who teaches and preaches, and for the rest of us who share the gospel, that will make the Holy Spirit an implicit issue rather than an explicit issue. The Holy Spirit is explicit. He is everywhere, all the time. And we need Him 100%. And so we want to make sure that as we study through this presentation, what is called the gospel according to John. It's really the gospel according to Holy Spirit as it is delivered to John. So could you keep that in mind? If we say John says this or John wrote that, that would be the typical way of teaching or preaching a particular message from the Bible. Would you please keep in mind that what is meant by that is that John is delivering that which he has first received, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. That which I first have received, I have given to you. And let's make sure as we hear this word and as we read this word and as we study this word, that we do so within the context of the Holy Spirit teaching us, inspiring us, educating us, giving us understanding and applying the word in our lives on a daily basis. Otherwise, it's just an academic exercise. And Paul says, 
what? Knowledge by itself does what? Puffs up. It makes us to be somebody, at least in our own estimation, when we're not. So I suppose my encouragement and admonition, my, the Holy Spirit's encouragement and admonition this morning would be, and every morning when we're together, especially for the presentation and reception of the Word, remember me. Amen? Remember me. Remember me. Because I am this Word to you. Remember what John's purpose is in the gospel. If you're not remembering, let's turn to John chapter 5. I'm sorry, John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. John's purpose. We have to remember the purpose because the purpose is the reason he starts as he does. He's written the entire account. And finally, at the end of the account, he tells us the reason why he has taken all this time and has been so deliberate and accurate in his accounting and in his presentation. Now, it's my understanding that Keith had asked the church to be memorizing these verses. Am I correct in that? John 20, 30 and 31. Is that correct? How many of you memorize this verse? How many of you could say it from memory? Now, raise your hand if you can say it from memory. Keep your hands raised. Come on, there's a classroom. You know how I am. No. Okay, Linda, you can say it from memory. Come on down. Let's turn on the mic. And let's read together as Linda has no notes, but will share with us the Word. No, I think this is wonderful. This is part of learning the Word of God. We need to encourage, be encouraged to memorize it. And, and come on, Linda, you know you like to be up front, in front here. So... Come on, we know. No, no, you, you come on down. Be an obedient lady in Christ and come on down. Don't take your notes. You don't need those notes. But seriously, just to encourage you, let's be memorizing this great word of life. Come on up to the microphone. This is Linda. Pratt. Here's the microphone down here. Linda. That's, yes, I know. Here's the microphone. Jose has it on nice and loud so we can hear you. You can. You can say it. Come on. Just peek at the word and you'll know it. Give a little peek. It's okay. Go ahead. Take that off. Okay. Now follow along in your Bible as Linda quotes the word of God to us. Go ahead. You can do it. Now Jesus did many signs in the presence of the disciples. You can peek if you need to. It's okay. You, you won't have a heart attack. Which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you will know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in him will give you life, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's whole purpose is... The glory of God through our salvation. God's great joy to have a family. That's John's purpose. I want to communicate to you the very life and reason of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And that is primarily that to gather in a family 
Not just to have a family, but to have the joy of God over his family and to reciprocally receive and give back that joy to God. That's John's purpose. And you notice what he says here. He says not only that you just believe something about Jesus, it's a good man and he wants to do some things, but there is a specificity about John that is like a razor's edge. And we'll see that as we go through the Gospels, the gospel. And that is this, that you believe something very specific and foundational and central about this man who walked the dusty roads of Galilee several years before he wrote the gospel account. And that is this, that you believe and trust and depend upon the fact that Jesus is Divine, the Christ, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Do you see what he has in the verse? The Son of God. And as we go through this, even this morning and continuing, let us be instructed, not just with information this morning, because I think this morning would be much more didactic teaching than preaching. But let us remember... That as we live and share the gospel, there must come a place where we make the issue, the truth, that Jesus Christ is divine. That must be the central truth of anything and everything we share about the gospel. That must be the central truth of everything and anything we share concerning the gospel. And we as believers, I think in a general way throughout the church, are weak in this area. We want to talk about so much else. But the issue is, is Jesus the Son of God literally divine forever? That's the issue. Apart from that issue, the issue of the cross is nothing. The issue of all the miracles mean nothing. The central issue of the gospel is this, the divinity of Jesus Christ. And so, this is where John begins. Why? Because it is the beginning place. Father, Father, this morning would you give us an enlarged view and understanding, appreciation and experience of this, the greatest of all truths of the gospel. Jesus is the Son of God forever. Father, fill us with the majesty, the power, And the glory of your Son by the Holy Spirit. Make Jesus known this morning among us and in us and then through us to a dark and dying and desperate world. So they also... Seeing 
and hearing and experiencing in us the Son of God. They may come to have life in His name. We can't do this. This is your work. So we call upon the Holy Spirit to do it because it's your will. And we call upon the Holy Spirit to empower us and to keep us empowered for your glory, for everything, Father, depends upon this truth. In Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen and Amen. Well, let's turn to the Gospel of John if you've not already done so. And let's look at the first five verses. I read this morning from the New American Standard Version. It should be pretty similar to yours if you have an ESV or perhaps another version. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Sorry, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, Nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. These verses, I believe, can be divided into two sections. Verse 1 being the foundation. The foundation not only of this paragraph, because these verses, these first five verses are a paragraph, even though perhaps in your Bible they don't look like a paragraph. I think sometimes I prefer not to have all these little numbers because I think they get us off track sometimes. John is writing a paragraph here. This is a contained thought. And so verse 1 is the very foundational truth. And the truth here is this, that John says, the Holy Spirit, remember, through John says, Jesus is divine. Then in verses 2 to 5, you can consider these, if you would, an elaboration, further discussion upon, greater light upon verse 1. And really... Verse 1 is not only a foundation for this particular paragraph, but the entire gospel account of John, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, the entire activity of Acts and Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and all the rest of the Bible until and including Revelation and all of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel. Remember? All of that, all of that rests on one central rock. And that rock is John 1, 1. If you don't know any other verse in the Bible, get this verse. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
If you don't get anything else, get that. Because if you, we don't have that, we have nothing else. So let's make sure we get that. Amen? So verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was what? With God, and the Word was God. Now, John gives us three truths about the Word in this one sentence. Three primary truths. First, the Word is eternal. Second, the Word is a distinct God person or person in the Godhead. And third, the Word is literally God. Three truths in this one sentence. The Word is eternal. The Word is a distinct person. And the Word is God. So let's talk about these truths one at a time. Number one, the first truth. What is the first truth about the Word that John tells us? He says that the Word is eternal. You see, it says, in the beginning was the Word. Now, that word, word, in the Greek is logos. You may have heard that a number of times in a number of occasions. It was a Greek term having to do with mind and intelligence, thoughts, and also the expression verbally of all of that which is inside of us being expressed verbally. And so John takes a word out of the common vocabulary of the day and uses it and tweaks it to relate specifically to this particular truth of the divinity of Jesus. Now, with any word and any set of words or any vocabulary or language that we could use, when it comes to God, our language falls woefully short. But we do the best we can because we take what God has given us in the language and at least understand what God is telling us through this, this limited language. So, John is calling Jesus the Word. What does that mean? What John is saying immediately by using this word, Word, is that Jesus is the very character, the very mind, the very purpose, the very intelligence, the very will and activity of God Himself. You remember in the Old Testament, if you were to go through the Old Testament and find every time it says the Lord spoke or the word of the Lord came or the word of God, you know, etc., etc., the word of the Lord, God's word, the combination of word in relation to God himself. You would see that from the very beginning pages in Genesis all the way through to Malachi, the Old Testament is, I'm going to say it this way, I don't mean it the way it says, cluttered. With this issue of God communicating, and not only communicating verbally, but becoming enmeshed with His people through or by the agency of His own Word. So you see, to the Hebrew, the Word of God was God Himself in a verbal expression through whatever the means would be, directly from heaven or through a sign or especially through the agency of prophets. You remember in Genesis, in the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you remember in verse 3, it says, then God said. And in fact, if you were to take the first chapter of Genesis, which is Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 2-3. That's the first chapter. Don't worry about that 2-3 thing. 2-3 is the ending of chapter 1. Over and over again in that chapter, the Word says this, And the Lord God said, Let there be. Let there be. Let this happen. And that is the activity of God in creation, bringing into existence Everything that is from nothing that was. And how does he do it? He does it through the power and the activity of verbalizing it into being. It's his word. Remember in Jeremiah, the word of the Lord is in me and it's like a fire in me. Jeremiah 36, 27, then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. The word of the Lord comes to Isaiah. The word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel. The word of the Lord continues to come from heaven itself to God's people. It is the very communication in a third person activity in the Old Testament. Because you see, the living reality and the very person of the Word of God has yet not to be born until the New Testament, you do remember. So, the Word is a logos. The Word is eternal. John 1, one. look again at the verse. In the beginning was. You see the word was. You remember that? That's past tense. You remember some of the English stuff? I am. You are. He was. Was is the Greek word H-E-N. And what that word is conveying, which doesn't adequately get conveyed in the way it's translated, is it's a state or a continual existence in past time. And so when John writes this, he is saying that this word has always existed, that there has never been a time in all eternity when the word was not. So you see, you could say or translate this particular verse. In the beginning, the word was continually existing without any interruption, has always been, is, and always will be. And so you see, John immediately presents the issue of eternality, the eternalness of the word. Now, this should tell us something. How many of us have been around forever, although you may feel like it or some of us may look like it? (laughs) But who is the only being who has been around forever? Come on, who? You can speak up in church if you're asked to. God is the only one who's been forever. And so you see, as John states that this one who is the Word has always been, he is saying the most radical thing. He's saying that there has never been a time when this word has not been. Even in Greek mythology, these things had a beginning. They had a beginning. But you see, in Judaism and in Christianity, there is no beginning to our God. Because he has always been. And so, first of all, understand that John says... The issue is eternality. 
and only a divine being is eternal. Only God is eternal. Watching the other day on one of these news, I think it's, I've forgotten what it was, about the universe. And how long the universe has been here and whether it was a bang theory began expanding and, or whether it's a, a continual revolving kind of a thing and Einstein thought it was and it was therefore eternal because it kept doing this and that. And they finally determined through, you know, all the movement of, I don't know much about this as you can tell, movement and so on. They have finally determined, I think, that actually there was a time, if you would, when everything came into being at a particular time, and whatever was there exploded, and here we have the result of that continuing on out. And it's amazing to watch these scientists grapple with the issue. And you can see it in them, but they don't say it. Where did the first whatever come from? Now, look, think about it. If there was something there that started it all and it blew up and here's what we have later, whether it took a trillion years, who cares? The issue is if it has if it if it was there in the beginning, did it have to have a beginning? Well, it always has been there. Now They will tell you that, well, we just have to say that it has always been there. But they ain't going to say that God has always been. But they will say that a piece of glob has always been. I mean, let's face it. If it's there, either it had to have a no beginning or it had to have a beginning. I mean, is this, is this logical, Bill? I mean, you know logic. It's, it, it sounds logical to me that some kind of way the thing had to get going. And they couldn't bring themselves to say, you know... Where did it come from? It came from God, who was there first and has always been there. What is the second truth about the word? Not only eternal, but the second truth is that the word is a distinct person. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. You remember your prepositions? With God. The word is a distinct person. Ah, now here's where you get into trouble. You see, it's okay to say that the word is eternal and has always been because everybody knows God is eternal and has always been. Everybody knows that. Amen? Everybody knows it. Every agnostic knows that there's something there and has always been. Here's where you begin to get into trouble, and here is where the difficulty occurs, and here is where it becomes radical. This word is not alone. This is not a single being, God. Because this word, which is now understood to be eternal, the consciousness, the thoughts, The ability, the intelligence of God is in the beginning. Well, that's okay. That's fine. I'm fine with that. But you see, this word is with God. Now we have two. We have a double God on our hand. We have God's. Now we get into what? Of trouble. Now you see, we depart from Judaism 
as they understood it. We don't really depart from it, but that's what they understood because this issue is all over the pages of the Bible. You see, the word is of the same essence and same substance and same power and same purpose and same etc., etc., etc. as God. But the word is also at the same time distinct from God. And we as believers must make sure we keep the distinction clear as best we can within this fog. See, this is foggy area, and we want to be clear about it. Amen? What else can you say? We want to be clear in the fog. The person is a distinct, this word is a distinct person. Distinguish from the person of God himself. You see, the word and God live in perfect unity and oneness, but they live as two separate Persons, persona, individuals, if you would. And, and please forgive me if I don't say it as clearly or as nicely as you would like to say it, but there's a difficulty in communicating such truth with such limited language. But know this, that John unabashedly and boldly says the word has always been and the word is with God. So immediately we know we have two beings here with God. Again, not just hanging around together, whatever, friends, I'm with you, you're with me. But being in such unity and such oneness and each absolutely and forever sharing completely in himself fully the same essence, the same substance, and yet each one being the distinct person. I mean, that's impossible. Well, of course it's impossible. Of course it is. I mean, who would ever devise a religion that cannot be explained? You see, man does not have the ability to philosophically or logically present something that he cannot himself explain. There should be a prima facie evidence that this truth is not man-made because man cannot create a theology or a philosophical system which he himself or someone else cannot explain. And this simply cannot be explained. It just can be shared. What's the third truth about the word? The third truth is this. The word is God. There it is. That's the climax. That's where John's going. I'm going to get there. We're going to talk about first this word is eternal. This word is a whole mind and, you know, the logos. The next step is what? The Word is with God. Now we have them together. We're talking about two persons. Okay, here's what I'm really saying. The Word is God. The Word is God. That's the climax. That's where John is going. It's a three-step thing. The top step is at the top. The third step is at the top. One, two, three. And we're at the top. We're at the highest place that the Bible gives us as far as revelation of God is concerned. We're at the highest place. The Word is God. We're at the top of the mountain now. You see, the Word is not only an eternal person, but must be understood as being fully and forever God 
in himself. See, the Bible doesn't say, and we should not think, well, Jesus is God-like. That's a heresy. Jesus is God. So when we consider Jesus before the incarnation, his birth, during the incarnation, his life, after the incarnation, the resurrection, we should not consider him just as a man, but we consider him as fully God forever in himself, always having been God Walking along the dusty roads of Galilee as fully God. Dying on the cross fully as God. And going up, uh, coming up, uh, up in the resurrection as fully God. And being crowned King of kings and Lord of lords. Fully as fully God. There's never been a time that Jesus is not fully God. The Word is absolutely and forever God Himself, equal with God in His person, in His essence, and in His work. You notice we're not going to talk about the Holy Spirit in relation to the Trinity because John doesn't discuss it. That's another matter for another day. So allow us to continue on with leaving out the Holy Spirit at this time. And you're not telling people, well, these are not Trinitarians. We are Trinitarians, which we'll share in a moment. Now, let's read verses 2 through 5 together. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness could not comprehend or overcome it or in any way diminish it. So let's look at these five, these next three, four verses, rather. Verse two, he was in the beginning with God. You notice now that actually the Greek says this one. So we can put the personal pronoun he there, the third person. He, you notice now that John is no longer talking in the third person, the word. You know, the third person, the word. He's now talking in a pronoun. He's using a pronoun he. Now we know since he said the word is a person, now we're going to call the word he. We're going to refer to him as he. The Holy Spirit should never be referred to as it, as King James does. It was just a flux in the language in those days. We refer to the Holy Spirit as he and him. So the word he was in the beginning with God. What, what is John doing here? He's just reaffirming. He said, in case you didn't get what I just said in verse 1, I want to make sure you get it. This one, the word, was in the beginning with God. So it's just a reaffirmation. One commentator says this. Jesus is declared in the most express manner possible to be all that God is, to possess the whole fullness of the attributes which make God God. And I'll add the addendum. Yet being at the same time a distinct person with God. So let's not think of God as really God as God. You know, that's God. And in Jesus, he's God. You see, God is God. Jesus is God. No, God is God. Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God. That's how we say it. Because if we're not careful, and we, I think, do this at least without considering it and while thinking about it, 
unpurposefully, we consider Jesus somewhat less than God. And Jesus is kind of like the subordinate or the help. Oh, he's God, but not really like God. Get that out of your mind. Jesus is as much God as God is God, as the Holy Spirit is God, and the Spirit is as much, etc., etc. This is difficult to grasp, but you see, it's just for us to under I'm sorry, not to understand necessarily, but to believe. John said, this is what you must believe in order to have eternal life. Because, you see, if Jesus is not fully God himself, he cannot save his people. He cannot save his people. And if Jesus isn't fully God himself, the entire Bible is a lie. And we go home. And we do something else on Saturday morning and on Sunday mornings. Verse 3. He begins to tell us something about the activity of this God who is called the Word. He says, all things came into being through the Word, through Him. And apart from Him, unless you didn't get the first statement... All things were made by him. I remember King James. How many of you know you know King James better than all this other? All things were made by him. Okay, but you didn't get it. And without him was not anything made that was made. So it's the same statement. He's just coming back as a good teacher, telling you the same thing, but from another perspective. So he makes sure you get it all together. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, whatever has been created came from him. Did you get that? It's important because a Jehovah's Witness will come to you one day and say that the Bible really says God, Jesus was a God. They put the privative A in there, which is not in the original, which you could or could not put in. You have that freedom, but it is not to be put in because Jesus is not a created being. They will tell you and the Mormons will tell you and others will tell you. You see, here's the central issue of attack against Christianity. It is against the divinity of Jesus Christ. Oh, they'll make him divine, but they'll make him divine as a result of coming from another divine. And now he is part of divine. And we all kind of are divine together, but he's certainly not God himself. They will all lower him some way or completely deny his divinity. They will either lower the divinity if you can lower the divinity. I don't know if you can lower divinity, but they will at least try to lower divinity to a different kind of a place. So you see, Jesus was created and then after Jesus was created, then Jehovah began to move through Jesus. And Jesus, the created Son of God, did all the work. This verse refutes that. All things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. What does that say? If Jesus had been created by Jehovah then that verse cannot be written. Are you with me today? Because Jesus then would have been, what? A created being, and there would have been something that had been created. And if anything had been created, 
then that verse could not say what it just said. All things were made by him. Well, that we can go with. Yes, you see, Jesus was a created being and he made all things, don't you see? Without him was not anything made that was made. And if he's a created being, he was made. And that second part of the verse says, no, not even Jesus was made. You see, the Holy Spirit is smarter than we are. He knows what's coming down the pipe later on. And he knows that somebody's going to say Jesus was made. He knows those other religions are coming. So he says, I better not just tell them Jesus made everything, but that I better tell them that there wasn't anything here until Jesus made it. See, God is ready for you. And he's ready for them. And because God is ready, so should we be ready through the knowledge of His Word. Amen? Make this Word your life. Jesus is the creator of Genesis. Who the temptation to go into Genesis and teach the whole chapter there? But if you were to look at Genesis 1, and do this later, please. Go into Genesis 1. Remember, 1, 1 to 2, 3 is Genesis 1. Go into Genesis 1 and count the number of times you see, and God, and God, and God, and God. The word God there is the word Elohim, which literally translated means gods. Gods. Well, it's a collective noun, so it is a plural noun which can be used and is used in the singular sense. But even in Genesis, the Holy Spirit is telling you, hey, look, we have more than one person here. Elohim, Elohim, Elohim. And Elohim in verse 26 says, let us, did, I just, did you just hear that word I just said, what? I went so fast past that you didn't get it, did you? And Elohim, in verse 26 of Genesis 1, said, Let what? Let what? Us. What is us? First, second, or third person. Let us make man in our image. Is it singular or plural, the word us and our? Come on, what is it? Single, plural. Plural means how many? At least how many? Two. So right there, you see... There's something peculiar about this revelation. Well, that's, I can explain that. You see, what's, that's not peculiar. That's just the royal we. When the queen says, let us. Let me tell you something. God doesn't have to use any royal anything. <clears throat> when God says us, what does he mean? He means us and babes. He means us and we's. Ours. He means what he says. Don't try to figure it out if you don't understand it. Just believe unto eternal life. Amen? You see, the issue with God is, did you get everything? Did you understand? No, the issue will be, did you believe me? Because believing then, you will begin to understand by the Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. We got a plurality here. Some kind of way we're dealing with something different. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, some of you may be pretty astute. I didn't say stupid, astute, and see that Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 begins a new way of 
discussing the creation from a different perspective. But something happens to the name. It begins to be, it comes across as what? A compound name. In the English it says what? And the Lord God said. All of a sudden it's changed. You have this word Lord in there from the Hebrew. God is the same Elohim. But the word Lord is now there. Hopefully you have a good Bible. Well, I shouldn't say a good Bible. A Bible which tells you that at that verse is the first use of this word Lord, which is the Hebrew of Yahweh. Y-H-W-H, which is a personal name of God, which in the Old Testament, the word Lord is used over 6,300 times And the word Lord, which is written differently, the word Lord is capital L, lowercase caps, lowercase cap, lowercase cap, O-R-D. The other word, just capital L and then little O-R-D, is the word Adonai, which means sovereign. And that's used maybe 90 times in the Old Testament. So when David says, the Lord is my shepherd, saying what? Yahweh is my shepherd. Bless Yahweh, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless Yahweh, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. You see, it's the personal name of God. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, the Lord has said to Moses, I'm sending you, I'm sending you. I'm the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I am sending you. And Moses says, what's your name? Who are you? Can you do what you say you would do? Who are you? And the Lord says, I am that I am. Tell them that I am hath sent you the name Yah. You see, it's an infinitive. It means to be. Remember your infinitives? To be, am, is, was. Remember some of those things? It is a revelation during a time When they didn't have this revelation scientifically, so they would never have been able to produce it theologically. It is a revelation of timelessness. God isn't an I was, I will be, or I'm a somebody. If you want to talk about who I am, you must know I am. In other words, God is himself Outside of time, not hinged by time, but in God, there is never a beginning or an end. There is only the present. God is the eternal present. I am. See, they didn't have that ability in those days to discuss this kind of a thing. I am. And you remember in John eight fifty eight. Jesus says, before Abraham was, ego ami, which is the Greek of the I am of the Hebrew. Huh! You mean to tell us that you are saying that you are the God, Jehovah, Yahweh of the Old Testament? Get a stone. We've got to kill the guy. You remember why they picked up stones? Before Abraham was... I am. Behold, Abraham was Yahweh. You remember in John chapter 18, when the guards are coming to get Jesus, maybe about a hundred people, cohort. We're not talking about little guys kind of trippy-toeing in. We're talking about mean, ugly, hateful, nasty people with swords and spears and helmets. 
battle-hardened men who would kill you in a moment. And Jesus says, who are you looking for? And they said, we're looking for Jesus. You see, if you're not careful, you'll miss it. All he says is, I am. What happened? And the soldiers fell to the ground. Read it. Read the Bible and get what it's saying to you. They fell to the ground at the announcement of His eternal and holy name and character. They fell to the ground. You see, out of Himself, He created all things and brought it all into being. There was nothing there. Jehovah's Witnesses are wrong. Yahweh Jehovah could be the Anglification. Yahweh is God. And he comes to earth. And the angel tells Matthew's account to Joseph. You shall call his name Yahshua. Yah, I am that I am. Hosea, salvation. You shall put them together and come up with a name which we call Joshua. Yahshua or Yahshua, which we translate Jesus. For the I am, the eternal Yahweh, has become a man. You see, this is what's going on. This is what John is telling us. Jehovah's Witness God, the Mormon God, and all the other panoply of gods cannot save a flea. Verse 4. He's not only the creator of all things, the eternal one himself, but in him was life, and the life was the light of men. You see, Jesus has, sorry, Jesus is Zoe, Z O E. He is the very essence of life. Notice I corrected myself. Jesus does not have life, he does not have power. He is power. He is life. He does not have authority. He is authority. Having it may mean that you had it from someone else. But He is residential in Himself. All that life is, He is life. Don't say Jesus has this and has that. Get it better. Jesus is life. I know John says was, He is life. What life means and what life is... It's who Jesus is. Don't have just something to give you. This is who He is. He is the eternal life. Therefore, He can give life. You see, we are recipients of that gift of life, but He is recipient of nothing. He is in Himself who He is. He is the ever-living one who has life in Himself. You remember in John 5, 21, Jesus says this, The Son gives life to whom He wishes. Why? Because He Himself is life. 
Now, there are other issues of submission and, and uh, the, aton- I mean, the incarnation that we'll get into later. But we're just dealing with his divinity here. Because Jesus is divine, the life that he has in himself is divine life. Therefore, he can call all life into being. Remember what I said in Genesis, let there be, let there be, let there be, over and over again. Now, Jesus' life is not only eternal life because it lasts forever, but eternal life is a quality of life. So Jesus' life is not only quantity forever, it is quality. It is the specific, unique God life. That's what eternal life is, God life. Share with someone the other day, I said, well, the other day, I'm sure it was years ago, but I said, you know, you're, there's good news and bad news for you. I said, the good news is you're going to live forever. And notice I didn't say he would have eternal life. You'll live forever. The problem is, where? See, the good news to man is we're going to live forever. We'll never die. When we shock these bodies, we're going to live forever. The bad news is, for many, where? But you see, to those whom Jesus has given of his life, we have his own life. Which means that we will have life forever, but the quality of life with God forever. So, eternal life is quality and quantity of God's own life. And this is the life you see that Jesus gives to the church. You see it in John 17, which we won't read. And the Bible says not only is Jesus life in himself. Remember, he doesn't get life from someone else. You'll see in chapter 5, Jesus talks about some of these issues, but it's in relation to the incarnation. Not in relation to his essential being. It's a difference. And Jesus' life, which he has in himself is the light of men. You see, man's life was supposed to be a mirror or a clear reflection of the very life that God has in himself. Rational, righteous, reflecting the understanding and knowledge of God. Man's life in Adam and Eve was to be a life that was to be a life of God-awareness and God-centeredness For the glory of God. That was to be the kind of life that they were given. In fact, that was rather the kind of life that they were given. And that was to be the kind of life that their ancestors forever would be experiencing and would be manifesting. God life. God centeredness and God glorifying life. That's God's life. Verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend or overcome it or diminish it. You remember in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had the light of life in them. Sorry, with them as the Lord walked with them in the cool of the evening. You remember God came down in the cool of the evening to walk with them, and they were hiding in the cabbage patch over there. You know, they weren't there. You remember that. That's why I don't like cabbage, you see. It's just not good for me, you know. And the fall of man, sin, 
brought darkness into the soul and psyche and mind and attitudes of man. The light of life, as far as its God-centeredness, was put out. But the rational aspects of the light, life coming light, remain in man. So man retained his natural abilities. He retained his natural life, but he forfeited his personal, the personal presence of God's life. So man today is rational and he can think and he can consider and he can devise and he can do all those things. The problem is, you see, it's not enlightened with the very source of who God is. And as good as man can get, it will always be eternally less than what it should have been. As good as man can get, it will always be eternally less than man, what man could have had and should have had in the garden. As God created us to be because of the fall. But you see, the light of Jesus Christ, the life of Jesus cannot be diminished. His light cannot and will never be diminished. By anything, by anything, by any sin, by any activity, by anything at all, or any activity or circumstance at all. His life will always overcome the darkness and man's sin to shine again in man. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. John says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it or dispel it or diminish it or in any way refract that light. And so in the incarnation and through the resurrection and salvation work of Jesus Christ, the light of life comes back in to those whom God has collected unto himself in the church. And so what do we see in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6? Paul says this, and even if our gospel is veiled, you see, dimmed out darkness. It is veiled to those who are perishing only by God's permission. In whose case the God, Satan, of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they may not see the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ, Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God said, let light shine out of darkness. Is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You see, we have the light back in us if we are one with him. Summary. What has John told us about the Word? I hope this paragraph is correct. I've, I worked it and worked it, felt the Lord, just whatever. But this is basically what I believe John has told us about the Word. The Word is one. Remember, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The great Shema, Israel, the Lord is one. 
We're not a polytheistic people. We serve a God in the heavens forever. But God is one who eternally dwells in an approachable light as three distinct persons in perfect unity. Each person being fully sovereign, possessing all the attributes, the qualities, and the power of God in equality, expressing himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is unique. Allah is not this God. Buddha is not this God. Jehovah of Jehovah's Witnesses is not this God. The Mormon gods are not this God. This is God. This is John saying, this is what we must believe about Jesus. Because everything of salvation rests on this. So you see, now the second person of the Godhead, the Word, has been identified. He is the Word. He is the son of Joseph and Mary. He's the son of God. And he's the Savior of the world. This is who he is. So what does that have to do with us? The only way, may I repeat that word? The only way to enter into the divine kingdom is through the divine door. In order to get into the divine castle, you have to go through the the divine door. And there's only one door in the castle. Remember in John 10.10. Jesus said in John 10.9 and 10, I am the door. I am. Ego eimi, Yahweh. If anyone tries to enter through me, I'm sorry, if anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out to find pasture. He's God. The thief, you see, the others, but especially Satan, comes only to steal and destroy and to kill. But I have come that you might have life and that they may have it abundantly. Everything depends upon Jesus' divinity. No equivocation. No equivocation about this truth. Eternity itself depends upon is Jesus divine. Did you get it today? Anybody have any loose ends here? Jesus is God. You see, anyone who does not believe in the divinity of Jesus calls God a liar. It does matter what you believe. There's no such thing as I make Jesus my Savior today and later on my Lord. He's the Lord who saves. He's not the Savior who becomes a Lord. He's the Lord God. Therefore, he can save Don't go with this stuff about Lord business later. I understand about submission and, you know, continually repenting and coming unto God and being matured. Jesus is Lord. Whether we make him or not, has to do with us, not has to do with him. John 1, 1 John 5, 10. The one who believes in the Son of God. You see, the divinity of Jesus. This is the term, the Son of God. Has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. Well, can people be saved who don't see Jesus as Lord? 
No, 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 no. Why? Because it's not the truth. And God is committed passionately and forever to truth. Amen? It's not the truth. When people ask you that, no, they can't be. Well, you know, no. Why? It's not the truth. And they shall know the truth. And the truth will make them free. You want to help your friends to be free? Preach the divinity of Jesus. Live the divinity of Jesus. No divinity of Jesus, no Christianity, no hope, no forgiveness, hell. That's what we have. So, all of this is dependent upon Jesus' divinity. Because Jesus is divine, he has all authority in heaven and earth. Matthew 28, 18, I didn't put a reference. Because Jesus is divine, he's created all things. He sustains all things by the word of his power. He is the God of all comfort. Because you see, Jesus is divine. He will complete the work of our salvation. Amen. Because He's divine, He will judge all wickedness by His own righteousness. Because He's divine, He is personally the fulfillment of all of God's promises to His people. Because He is divine, He is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the light of life. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is our soon coming King. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords because He's divine. You see, because Jesus is divine, we are saved by grace through faith. We have peace with God. We have the peace of God. We have the Holy Spirit. We are forgiven of our sins. We are the children of God. We can walk in victory over all sin and temptation because Jesus Christ is divine. We are God's light in the world and our names are written forever in the Lamb's book of life. Why? Because Jesus is divine. You see, because Jesus is divine, who and what can be against us? Because He's divine, whom shall we fear? What shall we fear? Because He's divine, why should we be discouraged and be our circumstances and problems? He is divine. Why should we fail to trust Him and love in His love and His power to do us good? He is divine. He is the Son of God forever. You see, everything depends upon this because Jesus is divine. All the Bible is true from cover to cover. The whole thing is the truth. Because He's divine, we have complete confidence in God's Word. Because He's divine, we will rise up and we will live victoriously. We will love and we will serve one another. We will live for the glory of God. We will look for His return from heaven, you see. Because Jesus is divine, today we will celebrate. Get it. Hit it. He's trying to hit it. Hang it out, brother. Let's celebrate. Let's stand up. We have a divine Savior. Let's celebrate. Let's hoot and holler. Let's yell. Let's scream. Let's raise our hands. Let's run. Let's jump. Let's do whatever we need to do to show Him our excitement that He is forever divine. He is the Son of God and we have eternal life in Him. Let's not be quiet about this. Let the world know that we serve a risen Savior who is divine. Bang it out, brother. Bang it out. 
All creation cries to you. Worship it in spirit and in truth. Glory to the faithful one. Glory to the faithful one. Jesus Christ, God's Son.